Welcome to Her Leading Story, a podcast that will inspire you with stories from amazing female leaders and give you some ideas to help you design a life and a career that's perfect for you. It's totally doable, and the good news is that you'll have me and our community of leading women by your side every single step of the way. Let's get started. I'm your host, Julie Artis, and this is Her Leading Story. Welcome to Her Leading Story. I'm so excited you're here to listen to the very first interview that I conducted. I interview my dear friend, Susan Cates, who is the managing partner at Leeds Illuminate. She has a long career in finance and private equity and investment banking, which she'll get into in the interview. And I just am excited to talk to her. We are dear friends. We went to undergraduate together. So you'll hear us laughing and making jokes a couple of different times. This interview includes so many nuggets of wisdom that Susan shares about her different roles over the years. One of the most interesting times in her career was when she left finance to head up executive education at UNC at Chapel Hill, having never worked in a university before, and how she had to both, you know, be a beginner and ask for help, and also at the same time, confidently know her value. She had wonderful mentors who she is still in touch with today who gave her time, who gave her feedback, but who ultimately also got out of her way and let her do things the way that she wanted to do them. I'll be asking the same questions of my interviewees throughout this whole podcast. And one of the questions that I asked Susan was what it was like to be a woman in a predominantly male career of finance. What were the roadblocks that she ran into? And she talks about her advice to younger women in finance about being yourself and not trying to be one of the boys. And then the other question I asked her was, (laughs) and it's funny because I knew her when she was 22, what advice would she give to her 22-year-old self? And it's interesting. She talks about not being set on having a really like solidified 20-year plan, but to take things as they show up in your career. And I think this is amazing advice for someone who is just getting started. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I'd love to hear your feedback. And I'm so glad you're here and so grateful to my dear friend, Susan, who was willing to be my very first interview guest. Enjoy. Thanks for being my first podcast guest, Susan. (laughs) Delighted to be. So the topic of this podcast is leadership and specifically women in leadership. And I think the audience would like to know more about what your position is. Sure. So I'm Susan Cates. I'm managing partner for Leeds Illuminate. We're a growth equity fund investing and 
companies in the education and workforce development space, and we invest with an explicit impact lens. So, you know, we're investing in private companies that are a $10 million plus revenue level and in companies that are serving learners and workers from first day of school to the last day of work. Great. So, The reason I wanted to interview you, and so the listeners know, we know each other quite well. We've known each other for over 30 years. We went to college together. And so it's a little weird because I know parts of your story from my vantage point, but I would love to go back to college and maybe graduation from college and what you majored in, what you did after college and take us through the story up to when you first became a manager, right? Like when you sure. first had to take on a leadership role. Sure, happy to. I went to Duke with you, obviously. Couldn't have possibly gone to Duke yet. I'd not gotten a scholarship, which was actually a leadership-oriented scholarship. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. I, I majored in public policy at Duke. Thought I was going to double major in French and then the 16th century French literature class that was required. I thought I could probably live without. And so I didn't end up doing a double major. And we graduated in 92, coming out into a recession. And I remember feeling very strongly that I needed to get a job because otherwise I was going to be back living in the basement at my parents' house in Bushy Fork, North Carolina. And <laughs> That was definitely not where I wanted to end up back after graduating from Duke. So I I was fortunate enough to get a job at Wachovia Bank in Atlanta in their credit training program. And I was the only person in my starting class who wasn't a business or an accounting major. But my college boyfriend had given me the very good advice to take accounting in college. Took Um, accounting? I took accounting. It was some of the best advice I've ever gotten. I had no idea that you took accounting in college. You probably had no idea that Duke offered it. I didn't. (laughs) They do. And I did. And I wouldn't have been eligible to interview for most of the jobs that I was interviewing for without doing so. So I went to work for Wachovia. I I remember being deeply disappointed that I had to go start a real job instead of going up to Rhode Island to go wait (laughs) with our friends. With yeah. our friends. Exactly. <laughs> and I spent four years at Wachovia and it was great training. It was great exposure to the business world. I had figured out in majoring in public policy that I didn't want to go to law school and I didn't want to work in a government bureaucracy. And so I figured that business was something I needed to go learn something about. And starting in banking was a great way to do that. And I had terrific managers and probably mm. didn't fully appreciate as much as I do now, just how outstanding the managers I had were in those in that those first few years. And I learned a lot. I learned that I liked finance. I learned that I liked sales. <laughs> I was in corporate banking covering the Northwest part of Georgia and competing with other banks to serve companies that were hundred million in revenues up to a billion or so. And, 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 Decided, though, that I wanted to go back to business school because I, as much as I liked pieces of what I was doing, I wanted a faster pace. And I had friends who were working at McKinsey and Strategy Consulting, and they seemed to be working on things that were more interesting than I was working on, and they were getting paid a lot better. So when I was applying to business school, I said I wanted to go do strategy consulting or investment banking. 
And if you had, if you had held a gun to my head, I couldn't have told you exactly what either of those things really were, but I knew that they sounded more interesting and more intense than what I was doing. And that's what I was looking for. Yeah. I went back to business school at UNC on a scholarship and ended up with an opportunity to do investment banking that first summer at Merrill Lynch and got an offer to go back and join them at the end of the summer. And so went back after my second year of business school. And that was also great training, crazy, intense hours, nonstop, and learned a lot. I started in the financial institutions group covering banks and insurance companies doing bank mergers and did that for the first year and then had an opportunity to join a startup group within Merrill that was focused on some high growth industries and education was one of those. And being able to go from numbers about numbers, which is Mm -hmm. what bank mergers are, to Working with founders and management teams who were having a big impact on people's lives in addition to building real value really appealed to me as the daughter and granddaughter of a public school teacher and stayed in the education sector in one way or another from a business perspective ever since. And so that's been almost 24 years. You don't really early own in your career in investment banking. You're not really managing people. You ultimately end managing people on a deal team as that evolves. But over after a few years, I left Merrill Lynch with two senior people that I was working with to start an investment banking boutique. And I was going to run our New York office and run the education investment banking vertical. And that was when I first moved into a role where I felt like I was actually really managing people because I brought over a more junior person. I brought over my executive assistant and going from a huge company like Merrill, where there are whole departments to do different things for you to a startup where I literally had to go down to the corner at Staples to pick the quote unquote phone system, which basically just meant (laughs) it was a detachable handset so that I could hand it to my assistant when I was leaving the office so he could answer my phone for me. But that was a, so that taught me a whole new set of skills. I didn't own the leadership point though. After investment banking, I spent the next four years as a partner in a private equity group down in Dallas, which is its own story. But in that case, again, you're managing deal teams, but not really managing an organization. It wasn't until I took a like hard right turn um, after a decade plus post-business school and decided to go work at University of North Carolina running their executive education business, where I actually had a whole team working for me, where I was leading an organization and having to make the sort of hiring and firing and leadership decisions that you do when you're leading an organization. And so to go from never really being a frontline manager in the the normal way to being president of this group and having to manage folks who were substantially more experienced than I was and were experts in their field in a whole new environment was like jumping into the deep end a little bit. Yeah. Steep learning curve. Yes. What it's interesting because I have always thought of you as being a people person and a leader and somebody who was easily able to in that sense, but it never occurred to me until now that it was really the transition to Chapel Hill was where you really had to enter uncomfortable territory 
not just because it was Chapel Hill, (laughs) (laughs) but uncomfortable territory in terms of really having to learn a lot about the organization itself and how it was working and then really step into what your vision was for the organization and lead change there. For, For sure. And the added complexity too of the person that I was reporting to was my immediate predecessor leading that organization. Oh, um, no. Who actually, like, that could go wrong in many ways. And I just a huge shout out to Jim Dean, who was my manager as well as became a great friend and just a great supporter and a great leader. He moved from running executive education to being the senior associate dean at the business school. A year later became dean of the business school was in that role. So I worked for him that whole time. And then he became provost of the university and he's now president of the University of New Hampshire. Wow. And What he did for me, I will never, I'll never forget because here I come knowing that I don't know anything about operating inside a university and knowing that I don't know anything about the executive education business. The prior dean had asked me to consider coming and doing this after I always say I ended up there as a result of a failed search. I was on the search Mm -hmm. committee, restarted it three times. And the dean at the time knew that I was thinking about doing something else. And he said, why don't you come do this dean's job? And I said, I know what we're looking for. It's not me. I'm woefully unqualified. And he said, sometimes when you're looking for a point guard, you go find the best point guard you can find. And sometimes you go find a great athlete and you turn them into a point guard. And I was like, you think you can turn me into a point guard? I'll come talk about it. So I took a 75% pay cut and took the job. But Jim, I spent a ton of time with him. He gave me, even though he, in retrospect, he did not have this amount of time to give me, but he gave me like a day and a half of a deep dive the week before I officially started and just gave me a real brain dump and Mm -hmm. let me ask all the questions. And then he said, I imagine that you'll want to meet fairly regularly. What are you what sort of cadence would you like? And I was like, oh, I like every week. And he was like, every week? I was like, yeah, (laughs) if you could give me like 90 minutes every week for, I I think I'm going to need it for for a while. And he did, he made the time. And six weeks in, I remember walking into his office and said, okay, so here's what I'm thinking about doing in terms of reorganizing this team and the org structure. And I know, I, I think I understand why you put these two roles together in this one person, but I don't think she's qualified to do one of those roles. And I'm not sure she's qualified to do the other, but I definitely think they ought to be broken apart. And so I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to try to change this other role. And these people who are like PhDs and working with companies that we work with, I'm going to like try to drive them into more of a sales function. And he would have been entirely within his reason and rights to say, have you lost, you don't know anything. You lost your mind. I've been doing this for five years. What makes you think? And instead he was like, tell me how you're thinking about it. And I did. And he said, when I was in the role, I thought about these couple of things. And how do you think about those things? And I would say, those are good points. And here's how I think about these. And at the end of the discussion, he said, it sounds like you've thought through this really well. And I totally support you. It's your decision. I totally support you. And he did that consistently, consistently for the next five years. It's really remarkable. It's a really hard thing to do when you've led an organization and led it 
well. Mm. He had done it effectively. And he also didn't let his ego get in the way of that because he ended up driving really strong growth. And I remember him saying to me, maybe a year, two years into it, I started there and met at the beginning of another recession. Oh. We managed to grow through that while all of our peers were declining. And as a result of that, I remember him saying, I wonder if um, I wonder if faculty realize that this will never be a faculty role again. You run it like a business and it needs to be run like a business. And that's yeah. what we're doing. But he was a terrific leader to learn from. And even the mistakes that I made, particularly with some of the senior folks on my team, they, none of them were fatal. And, and they were generous enough to tell me that they, that they were mistakes as well. <laughs> so. And you were generous enough to listen. And take feedback. <laughs> I knew that there was a lot that I didn't know. And I also knew that there was a lot that I could contribute to that organization that they, that they needed as yeah. well. Knowing where, where you are, where you have no expertise, mm -hmm. being upfront about that and being comfortable in that and, and knowing where you can deliver value, I think is one of the things that's really important whenever you step into a, yeah. a leadership role. Because there's so much uncertainty and anybody else in your position and could have gone into that role and really been like, I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah, I can't. So you, in some sense, had to be the learner, but you also had to have this like set of confidence Yes, that you, A, you could learn it. Yes. And that, and what it sounds like is, was key was having boss yes. who essentially trusted you and your gut Yes. About the direction that you wanted to go in and really supported you, in, but got out of the way. For sure. Yeah. And that continued on a couple of years into that role. We had a first meeting with a company that was starting to work with universities to take degree programs online. And given my prior work on the both the investment banking side and on the private equity side where I'd been where I'd been helping build companies in the US and South America where we were using distance education to really expand access to quality but lower cost education because of that I was in the very first meeting with them and I happened to have known the founders of the company for many years as well and I sort of took on leadership of exploring that option along with two of the other folks in the dean's cabinet effectively and then we went down the path of we should explore launching an online MBA program with this company and so that was my side gig was to try to like maneuver and manage through that exploration process, get folks on board, do the financial analysis to make sure that the deal that we were cutting made sense, negotiate that. Once we introduced the idea to faculty, a very thoughtful <laughs> set of steps. I was incredibly fortunate to have one of the most respected faculty members in the building, Doug Shackelford, really warmed to the idea of really exploring this. Jim, my dean, asked Doug to be the faculty lead on exploring this and partner with me on that. And we went on to launch that program and he became the, Doug became the associate dean of that program. And I managed to, Jim, the dean, that he should let me do both jobs, that he should let me, <laughs> that I begged for the opportunity to be able to do two jobs for the price of one. And, and Jim, at first, when I'd said that, he was like, no, we'll get somebody to run this once we, if it launches, we'll hire somebody. 
I'm like, okay. And then as we got closer, he was like, obviously this is your baby. You have to run this. And I was like, I good. I'm glad you gotten there. And he said, but I, you can't do both jobs. I know how big the exec ed job is. I used to do it. Like I, and I said, okay, you've gotten part of the way there. I still got to get you all the way there. And I basically convinced him that he couldn't afford another me and that he needed me. <laughs> <laughs> So let me do it for the first year. And you know, like the first year is going to be the hardest part. And if I can make it through the first year, then we'll talk about it again. So we made it through the first year. We launched it successfully. The next year, when he tried to have the conversation again, I was like, look, the hard part's done. Now, like, now this is the right. hard part. Why are you going to take it? We've got budget issues. You can't possibly hire somebody else to do this. And we're growing on exec ed. And this is going successfully. Why do you want to try to- Don't upset the apple cart. Exactly. So he allowed me to continue doing two full-time, which I did very happily for the next five or six years over the time there. And then and Doug, again, just- Another really great leader and great partner, incredibly mm -hmm. smart and thoughtful and, and confident enough that he could sit in a room and a meeting for an hour and not really say much of anything because he wasn't trying to prove himself to anybody and listen. And then when he would say something, it was the smartest thing anybody in the room had said the whole time. He was just an unbelievable partner and building MBA at UNC, our online MBA program side by side with me and really trusting that, that I had all of the things that sort of fell under my view and that he had all of the pieces that fell under his. And we were incredibly well aligned. We usually saw things the same way. And when we didn't, um, we had a lot of respect for each other and we'd talk through them to, and get on the same page very easily. He then became, when Jim became provost, Doug, no surprise to me, became Dean. Of the business school. Of the business yeah. school. And so I was able to work for him for, for the next the next year and a half or so there. Wow. And he was just the, I was incredibly fortunate to work with both Jim and Doug as just great leaders, great partners, people who really were willing to give me a lot of rope. Jim once told me a story that on his way home every night, he would drive past this pasture and there were cows. In them. And he said, they remind me of you. I was like, oh, do go on because you've just called me a cow. <laughs> And he said, they've got a pretty big pasture and they seem happy. They're wandering around and they like, they're grazing and they do their thing. They seem happy. And every now and then the, a cow bumps up against the electric fence and bad things happen. And he said, and that's <laughs> kind of the way I see you inside like a, like a university bureaucracy. Like you've got your pasture and like you, everything's good. And every now and then you bump up against like university bureaucracy. Oh my. He said, he said, but where the analogy falls down is that with the cows, bad things happen to the cow. He said, with you, I worry about the fence. <laughs> <laughs> and so when he became the provost, I was like, my pasture just got a little bit bigger. Because when it's so interesting, because I work in a university and have for almost 25 years and it is so slow to make change and so just watching from afar as you went in there and you were like oh I'm gonna have to reorg this and reorg that and I was like oh Susan what have you got yourself into <laughs> how did you I'm curious about that time and if you are able to talk about one of the mistakes that you made. 
Sure. Yeah. So early on in the in in my role in exec ed, I had a very senior woman who'd been there for decades, had a PhD, had been in a senior HR function, had served as part of a triumvirate interim head of the group years prior who took her role very seriously and who was exceptionally good in many ways too. And we had a situation with a client where the client was pushing for something and my program director didn't think that it was a reasonable request. And so she told them no. And when I heard about it, I thought, I felt like we weren't being reasonable, that we should absolutely say yes to their request and told her so and told the client that we would do that. And she sat down with me not too long after that to help explain to me the management mistake that I'd made of cutting her knees out from under her with the client, undermining her her authority with the client, which was fair feedback. I felt then still feel that we should have said yes to the client. But I also didn't stop to think about the impact that my overriding her would have on her relationship and her credibility, her standing Mm -hmm. and her authority with that client or how that would impact her relationship with me. And so it was, I really appreciated, I appreciate it more now than I did then, kind of like, but, um, but I do, but I genuinely appreciated her saying it. I very much, I often joke that I don't do passive aggressive. I only do aggressive. It's just faster. <laughs> like, and so I much appreciate I much prefer it when people tell me what's bothering them or when I've done something that has mm-hmm. made it an issue, because I can deal with that direct feedback a lot better than I can deal with sort of the bad behavior that comes along with it when you stew over something without telling somebody what's going on. Yeah. Uh, But that was a, it was good learning for me. And I remember her saying to me, this is management 101. Oh my God. (laughs) I was like, that's true. It is. I screwed up. Yeah. It's interesting. Like one of the things that for me was the hardest when I became chair of my department was navigating conversations with colleagues who in many cases were more senior than me. And I, unlike you, I'm an avoider. So I would always be super, super scared to go into this conversation and say, we've had this, we've had this issue. I'm observing this. Like I really had to learn that as a skill. Is that something that you, do you think your personality just prepared you better for this? Or do you feel like conflict or like having those kinds of tough conversations come comes easily to you or how I'm just curious. It's not easy. And it's never, you never want to have a conversation that's like where there's going to be conflict. And I thinking about another one of my senior team when I was at UNC that I had had a sort of unexpected sort of conflict. He was like an alien. Like I just never understood his behavior. (laughs) I remember having a like a surprising field conversation with him one day and I just came home and I like opened a bottle of wine and I made some cheese toast and I sat down to watch some law and order. And Scott, my husband was saying, 
you want to talk about it? I was like, no, I just made wine and cheese toast. <laughs> so you have to like, you got to find whatever gives you yeah. the ability to regenerate after that. But I do, I, I think I am probably, I think from a personality standpoint, I am probably more um, willing to take things head on. In some ways, I also think the fact that I didn't actually end up in a leadership position until I'd already been successful in other, other parts ways. of my career. Yeah. It gave me some confidence. A couple of years of therapy and I managed to like drown that bitch in my head who told me <laughs> I was not good enough too. And I don't know how I killed her, but she's dead. She's um, dead. <laughs> so that, that helped a lot. I also, and that works differently in different environments too. It was a different way that I had to deal with that in an environment at inside the university versus what I'd done in investment banking versus the way that I, when I left UNC and mm -hmm. became chief operating officer of a public company where I had, we were about a thousand people, 150 million in revenues when I joined and had about 85% of the roles ultimately reporting up to me. And so figuring out how to manage conflict and directness in that environment and how to made an organization where, where you're managing through others was a like a whole new learning curve for me as well. But yeah. And you're always learning. Yeah. That's a, yeah. of course, that's what makes it fun. Right. Yeah. What that's an interesting observation because at UNC you had a smaller, it was just a smaller entity, but at your job after that, where you were COO, it's really important. I would guess to pick the right like VPs or whatever they were underneath you. Yes. Um, and having stepped into the, a role there where I was working for a founder CEO who had been very successful, who I'd known for a very long time. And the folks who were reporting to me had been with the team for a long time. I wasn't stepping into a situation where I was hiring those people. And there were deep relationships and loyalties and then issues around those as well. And one of the things that I think is really key to being successful in a larger organization is making sure that you have the that you have the authority to make to make changes and make your hires in those roles. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to harder to, to be successful when you don't. When you step in and you're not building the thing. Yeah. Or when you step in and there are certain places where your hands are tied. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just have to roll with that and yes. mitigate whatever the negative outcomes are. So then you're, it's like, you can't make everything, you can't fix everything. And sometimes no. you just have to Right. Sometimes you have to work you, even when you're in a leadership role, you are working with folks who maybe don't want you in that role and where you can't make some changes that you might otherwise do. And you just have to figure out how do you build relationships and manage in that situation as, as well as you can. I have a couple questions. Sure. How do you think being female has helped you in these roles or hurt you? It's an interesting question. When I started, I've spent a lot of my career in finance. And so in investment banking, in private equity, there are very 
still very few women on a relative basis. And there's no question that that wasn't a, that wasn't an advantage early in my career being female in a, in a group where out of 60 plus people, there were only three women. And I tried to, back then I tried to act one of the boys. I would go out and drink shots of tequila and smoke a cigar with them. <laughs> and I, and while I still like tequila, cigars are nasty. Like one should never do that. And I, and the advice that I give younger women now too, is you're never going to actually be one of the guys. So like, you got to give up the ghost on that and be yourself and, and find a place where being yourself is going to work. In the university context, in the eight years I spent at UNC, it was the, it was glorious. I felt like that, like that interlude of my career was the time period in my life where being female was just a non-issue. I just didn't feel like it was a, a hindrance. I didn't feel like people treated me different. I felt like I got enormous support from my my managers and key folks that I worked with and that it that it really just wasn't an issue. I'm definitely because I'm pretty direct and because I like to move fast and get things done. I am not for everybody. And in fact, when I joined the firm where I am today, the founder of the firm said to me, I should do some formal reference checking, but we know a lot of the same people. I can't find anybody saying anything bad about you. And I said, oh, then let me give you some <laughs> because I am not for everybody. And being aggressive and being direct and being ambitious are all things that can sometimes work against you as a woman. And I genuinely did not feel that in the years that I was at UNC. So that was a glorious interlude on that front. Now that I'm on the private equity side, back on the private equity side, leading a fund, building a team, which happens to be all female, which is not by design, but I don't cry over it either. I'm sure that we need to diversify as we expand the team. We had a, a terrific man as an intern this summer who's who you know as well. But I feel like the challenges that I deal with right now, leading a fund and building a team and building out what we're doing, are the same challenges that I would be dealing with if mm -hmm. I were if I were a man in this industry. I think I probably deal with them differently and know I show up differently than a man in this role. When we had our, our annual meeting for our investors last week, I put up a slide that had baby pictures of the babies born to several of our founders and several of our investors this year as we were talking about growth. I said, like we're a majority mom team. We can't mm -hmm. let the moment pass without talking about the growth in our broader family. I'm not sure that a man would have done that. Yeah. Uh, and one of the first pieces of swag that we ordered for our fund was onesies because we just knew so many of these folks who were having babies. And we're like, we should send them onesies with Leeds Illuminator. That's awesome. So I think there are things that I do differently, but I don't feel like like any of the challenges that I'm dealing with are specific to being a woman, generally yeah. speaking. Yeah. My final question for you, and this is a good one because I knew you when you were 22. <laughs> <laughs> yep. If you could go back and tell your 22-year-old self any piece of advice about, it could be about leadership, but it could be about life or work or career stuff, what would you tell yourself? It's easy to get hung up in your own head when you're making decisions, particularly when you're making decisions about taking on a new role or a new challenge. And most decisions are not terminal. The advice that I often give is, this is not a decision for what you're going to do for the rest of your life. This is a decision of what you're going to do next. And when you 
when you think about it in that context, it becomes easier to think about what do I want to go do next and not feel like the weight of the whole world. Oh, oh my God, what am I, I make this wrong decision. It's going to end my life and end my career. It's not, you can always choose to do something else. My daddy used to say when we were little, if, you, if we ever wrung our hands over a decision, he would say, do something, even if it's wrong. And that is advice that I try to live by generally. Yeah. You can like, if I do something and it is wrong, I can make a different choice. I can, if I figure out that this role or this team is not a good fit, I can go do something else. It is not a terminal decision. I think that would be the the advice I would advise to, to my 22-year-old self or anybody else who's early or anywhere in their career where they're mm-hmm. feeling hung up over. And you decision. have made, you have changed oh, several yeah. times. It, I, if I, if you had asked me coming out of business school, what I thought my career was going to look like, I would have said, I'm going to be at Merrill Lynch for the next 20 years. This is what I'm going to do. I don't like change. I don't want to, I want to be with the same company. I want to go do this. And I've had five different careers within the broad framework of the same industry that I work in and looking at it through a different angle every few years. And I've loved that. And the combination of all that has put me in this incredible position to be able to do what I'm doing now, which I love, but it wasn't that I had a 20 year plan that looked like that. I would have told you that, no, I'm going to go work at Merrill Lynch until I retire. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. This was so much fun hearing great your fun perspective. Talking with you. And that's a wrap on this episode of Her Leading Story. If you love this episode, Please help me reach more women by leaving a review wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for being here and I'll see you next week.